0: we're making our way through this marvelous gospel verse by verse and week by week and we've covered a lot of territory since the first year of the year and even today we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there if I can borrow a line from Jerry Reed's song and so we're going to move pretty quickly today. I had all intentions to uh, uh, fulfill what is in your bulletin today to go from 25 to 35 in Luke chapter 2 but I didn't make it. So, We're going from 25 to 31 this morning, and so we'll make up time next week. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to read from 25 to 35 anyway, and if you're there and you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, let's do so. Starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, God's Word says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And said to, his, to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it nourishes us and instructs us and corrects us. Help us to learn more about you today, and so that we could, in turn, magnify and praise you with our lives and our lips and our minds. Help our ears to be quick to hear this morning, and our our hearts quickened to understand your word, and we do thank you for your word in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking at the uh, miraculous testimony of several witnesses as to the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Steve showed us last week that just through these first three, the first three chapters of this gospel that we have about ten witnesses as to who this baby that was to be born to Joseph and Mary. This wasn't just some random first century Jewish child born out of, to an out-of-wedlock mother or a Jewish carpenter. And that's really why Luke is writing here anyway, isn't it? I mean, he's interviewing these eyewitnesses, and he's investigating everything carefully so that his most excellent Theophilus, and you and I as well, would know the exact truth as to who this child really was. Now, why does Luke do this? Why is he so painstakingly making the case that Jesus is the Messiah? Why bring so many people into the courtroom to verify who Jesus is and the events that are surrounding his birth? Well, for one thing, for the Jew, they were never to receive an accusation against someone and confirm it unless they had two or three witnesses. That's what Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us. If someone accused you of something or said something of you, Two or three witnesses had to come along and agree with those facts, and it was a done deal then. Even in the glamorous world of law enforcement, I'm told that the more witnesses that you have to a crime, the more likely that person is going to be convicted of that crime and the accusations proven true, as long as the stories of those witnesses all line up. Now, for us today, the two or three witnesses still applies especially when it comes uh, in terms of church discipline or removing an elder out of the church, right? Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5.19 both corroborate that for us. And so, as we've seen since the beginning of Luke 2 here, we've already had a couple of different witnesses come forward and testify that there was indeed something very special about this child. And for the most part, they have been on opposite spectrums and often, off, excuse me, opposite extremes in terms of their social status and things of that nature. One of such witnesses have been the angels and the multitude of angels that we've seen in verses 8 through 14, the divine messengers of God who reveal that Jesus is Savior Christ and Lord. We've had the shepherds themselves in verses 15 through 20 they were not considered a trustworthy group. In fact, in first century Israel, they weren't even allowed to testify in court because they were not trustworthy enough. Yet, our God sovereignly selected them to bear witness of the Messiah's birth. We, we have Joseph and Mary in verses 21 through 24, and we'll talk more about them in just a moment. And today, we're going to be looking at a man named Simeon, who will be looking for the consolation of Israel. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at a prophetess named Anna, and the coming weeks beyond, we'll start to ascend the Mount Everest of witnesses, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His words, his miracles, and so on and so forth will testify as to who he is. Now, if all of those witnesses and testimonies and reports about who Jesus Christ is, the testimony and witness of John the Baptist, and how Christ was born, and about how the Emmanuel, God with us, came to be, Luke will remind us who the Messiah is by way of genealogy. And as we'll hopefully get to this year, but this is not an interruption into Luke's account. This isn't just an afterthought that he threw in there, but rather it serves as a confirmation that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so we are given just more than two or three witnesses, aren't we? And they all bear testimony to the truth. And as I said from Steve's count last week, there's 10 of them. But we learned last week a little bit more about Joseph and Mary, the earthly parents of Jesus, if you will one of the major things that we learned about them and we saw is that they were absolutely obedient to the Word of God. They named the baby Jesus, just as they had been told to do so by the angel Gabriel to Mary in Luke one thirty one, And Joseph was told the same thing by way of a dream, and we know that from Matthew one twenty one. And as you recall, the angels didn't speak on their own initiative, but as God instructed them. They were simply the messengers, and as a result, Joseph and Mary were obedient to that message. Mary's Magnificent is another example that we saw several weeks ago as to just how scripturally saturated she was. Her praise to the Lord there is just full of Old Testament scriptures. But also, as Jesus is born to them, we see how they are both obedient in obeying the law of the Lord. Verse 22 says that they were following the days of purification according to the law of Moses. Verse 23 tells us that they were presenting him to the Lord as is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24 tells us that they offered a sacrifice according to the law of the Lord. Verse 27 tells us that they brought Jesus into the temple to carry out for him the custom of the law. Verse 39 will tell us that after they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Verse 41 tells us that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And then verse 42 tells us that they did so according to the custom of the feast. Now, why is Luke so meticulous for us in the fact that Joseph and Mary did all these things. Why is this important about them keeping the law of the Lord and obeying the law of Moses and obeying the customs with this newborn baby? Well, it really isn't so much about them, so much was it. It was really about Jesus. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. There was not one aspect of his life, even in his infancy, that was not brought into perfect obedience to the law of the Lord. And providentially, God used Joseph and Mary to help accomplish that. Think about it. If Jesus would have transgressed one aspect, just one aspect of the law of the Lord, even in his infancy, he would have ceased to have been a perfect sacrifice in his death. And God used Joseph and Mary to help accomplish that. Now, we need to dive into our text here this week because, as I mentioned, we've got a long way to go and to cover these verses. And we've got to find out about this Simeon and who he is and what he has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. So looking at verse 25 with me, it says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now this particular man is mentioned, not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. There are other Simeons in Scripture, but we don't know a whole lot about him. We don't know his vocation. It doesn't say that he was a priest. It doesn't say how old he was, except we can kind of deduce or deduct from inference rather that he may have been an old man since he says that since he's seen Jesus, he can depart in peace. It's a euphemism for he's ready to die. But Luke doesn't really give us a whole lot of information about this man socially or physically. But we do know about, more about his spiritual condition more than anything else. Luke says in his writings here, it says he notes him to be righteous and devout. Just like Job in Job 1.1 or Zacharias in Luke 1.6 that we've seen, Simeon's character before God is the most important fact that Luke gives us. And as we mentioned before, this does not mean that they were walking in sinless perfection, but they were walking in such a way that their faith in God allowed them to have righteousness imputed to them. This is what Galatians 3 is talking about, and specifically Galatians 3.11. It says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Abraham, in Genesis 15.6, believed God, and it was reckoned him as righteousness. Well, this Simeon here in Luke chapter 2, he believed in God and he was a Jew inwardly, not just outwardly as Paul describes in Romans two twenty-eight and 29. He wasn't masquerading around. He wasn't some self-righteous Jew that happened to be at the temple at the right time. He wasn't a two-faced individual. Now this really hits home to us sometimes, doesn't it? And I'm not asking you to look at someone in this room and across the room, but I'm asking you to examine yourself this morning. Are you living in such a way, outside of these four walls and outside of this gathering of people here today, the church, are you living in such a way that someone would be able to say that that man is righteous? That man or that woman or that young man or that young woman is definitely a Christian. No doubt about it. What about when you're alone, when it's just you and God? Are you living in such a way that even when you're alone, that your greatest delight and your greatest joy is God? Simeon, he was living out his faith because it says that he was devout. Luke is the only author in the New Testament to use this term devout, but essentially it means that he was a God-fearer. He was reverent as to the things of the Lord. He was a spiritually sensitive God-fearer. You could say that he had a healthy fear of God. Now, I want you to compare and understand this to compare it to this week's Christian, notice my fingers, people, Christian, quote, of the week. Are you ready? All right, quote, this this female said this at a church, quote, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. So I want you to know something this morning. Just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen? Now, in case you miss the heretical and blasphemous quote of the week, It came from Victoria Osteen, the wife of Joel Osteen, who was standing right beside her when she said this. Now, do you think they have a healthy fear of God? The answer to that question is no. Amen. Because if they did, if they had a healthy fear of God, they would not be telling you and proclaiming humanism in the name of Christianity. They're out there telling you to worship yourself. Do not come to this church to worship yourself. We come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. That is blatant, outright humanism, people. It's not biblical Christianity. They're telling their 43,000-member church and their millions of Twitter and Facebook followers to worship themselves. If that isn't exchanging the worship For the creature rather than the creator, I don't know what is. But they certainly do not have a healthy fear of God. So whenever you hear someone tell you that God just wants you to be happy, I want you to lock in a Bible verse in your mind. I want you to lock in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 32. It says, it's the hall of faith, right? It says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection." Now, that sounds pretty happy, doesn't it? Those are all good things. Now, listen to this. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They were about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That part didn't sound very happy, did it? So how is it that the second group of men here are to be called men of whom the world was not worthy? It wasn't because they were looking to their own selves for their own personal fulfillment and their own personal happiness. Chapter 12 tells us that it was because they were fixing their eyes on the author and perfecter of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that's exactly where we find Simeon here. Simeon had a healthy fear of God. He was righteous and devout. And he was fixing his eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Because it says in our text here that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. There's a couple things to notice about this here. First of all, Simeon was a man looking forward to God's messianic plan of redemption. Now you might say, what in the world does that mean? What it means very simply is that Simeon understood the scriptures to have revealed that the only hope to save mankind is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. He understood the scriptures to have revealed that the only hope to save mankind would be found in the person of Of Jesus Christ. He had an eschatological outlook, if you will. He was looking forward to the consummation of history and the ultimate destiny of humanity. And as Simeon studied and understood and was taught the scriptures, he understood that there was a Messiah that would come. Why would he understand scripture that way? Because that's the heart and the soul of the Old Testament message. I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3 We've been here before, but I want you to look specifically at Genesis 3, verse 15. All the way to the very beginning, first book of the Bible, Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15 is the verse that is sometimes called the mother promise, because it really sets the tone here for the rest of the Old Testament. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of mankind, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God created it perfect, and then then, uh, the serpent tempts Eve. She takes and eats the forbidden fruit, and then she gives it to Adam. He eats it, and guess what? Bam, now they're sinners, right? Now, notice that immediately after the fall of man, after they have sinned, what does God do? God promises a future redeemer. Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent... I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So before that, in verse 14, he curses him physically, right? And then he gives this future uh, promise in a nutshell that there is going to be someone who comes... To deliver a fatal blow to Satan. That's what it means when it says that he shall bruise you on the head. That's a fatal blow. And you shall bruise him on the heel. That's just a flesh wound. This is called the mother promise because it's here at this point that the promise of the future Redeemer begins. From, so from this point on, Genesis 3.15, all of the Old Testament points or it looks forward to a Redeemer. Now, as this Redeemer is identified, that it will be from the seed of a woman or a child. Furthermore, it's going to be re- uh, revealed that it's going to be the seed of Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. In your seed, the nations shall be blessed, right? We're giving a little bit more information. Genesis 49, 10, it's going to give us more information and in that he will be of the tribe of Judah. You see how it's working out here? And then even further into the Old Testament, we learn that this coming Redeemer will be a descendant of David. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13. starting to shape up, isn't it? Isaiah 7 tells us that this child will be born of a virgin. Isaiah further develops this and describes the Messiah as one who will be a suffering servant, such as in Isaiah 42 and 53 which will help us to understand Simeon's words to Mary later on. Micah 5.2, it tells us that he will come from Bethlehem. And so what you have throughout the Old Testament is this progressive revelation as to who the Messiah would be. Daniel and Revelation are not the only books of the Bible that are eschatological or forward-looking to the consummation of the end. The entire Bible Permeates with an eschatological or forward-looking perspective. The whole Bible is forward-looking in its entirety, in its very simplicity, the Bible is a book of hope. It looks to the future. And so this is where we have this God-fearing man, Simeon, looking for the hope of salvation through the Messiah. But we can also... Uh, Note that not only was he looking for the Messiah, as we will see Anna and even Joseph of Arimathea in Luke 23, 51, and others doing later in this chapter, but he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Flip back to Luke 2 with me if you're not there. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. So not only was he looking for a Redeemer for himself, but he was looking for the comfort or consolation of the nation of Israel. Now, this is very reminiscent of Paul in Romans 9, isn't it? In verses 1 through 3, he says, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ." For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was deeply and passionately concerned for the salvation of his fellow kinsmen. So much so that if he could exchange his salvation so that his fellow Israelites could be saved, he would do it. Now, although that it was impossible... It was an impossible exchange. It nevertheless showed the love and the passion in his heart that he had for the salvation of the Jews. And this is where Simeon's heart is as well. He's eagerly awaiting the Messiah so that God could bring comfort to a disobedient and rebellious nation of Israel. Remember, things had not gone very well for Israel, who were at the very moment they were occupied by the Romans. And Herod was not a very nice leader. They were made to go and participate in an unprecedented census. They were oppressed. And they never really handled the blessings of God very well as a nation anyway. So with expectant hope, Simeon's looking for the Messiah who will set up his kingdom and deliver Israel. And then lastly for verse 25, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, just as the Holy Spirit filled John the Baptist in uh, Luke 115, Elizabeth in 141, and Zacharias in 167, here again, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon this man to either speak or do something for the glory of God. And in this case, Simeon is going to be in the right place at the right time. In fact, you could say that it was divinely appointed place in a divinely appointed time. Verse 27 is going to confirm this for us later, but so we're seeing this pattern in Luke where the Spirit is going to come upon someone in order to speak or act for God. Furthermore, it tells us in verse 26 that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon here, he receives divine revelation. It doesn't say how exactly this occurred, but it was in fact a very rare and unique occurrence in that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. So sometime in the past, God tells him that you are not going to die until you see the Messiah. And that probably caused him to be a little bit expectant, wouldn't you think? It would have had elevated his messianic radar and would have maxed it out, knowing that he wouldn't die until he saw him. Maybe he lived like Zachariah, uh, Lazarus rather. after the resurrection. He was resurrected by Jesus. Remember, Jesus called him and said, Zacharias, come forth. If you ever heard Zach- uh, Rabbi Zacharias tell this account, it is absolutely hilarious and powerful at the same time. Lazarus dies. Jesus brings him back to life. Now, think about it. If someone ever threatened Lazarus again, they're going to kill him, right? Do you think Lazarus would have been really afraid? I've already died once. I'm back now. There's this whole interchange that he does with Caligula, right? He says, Lazarus, I'm going to kill you. And Lazarus is like, Psh, "Ha, whatever. And he goes, no, I'm really going to kill you. He's like, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. He came back from the grave by the power of Jesus' spoken word. He has no fear now. And so Simeon, he's given this unique and special privilege of being told that he will not see death until he sees the Messiah. And so, by a random sequence of events, it just so happens that on the 40th day that after Jesus' birth, Simeon happens to be at the temple at the same time as Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and he sees them, right? Wrong. Look at verse 27 and 28 with me. It says that, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Joseph and Mary have seen and heard some pretty extraordinary things up to this point about their child, haven't they? angelic visitors, elderly relatives having babies, shepherds to come visit them them in Bethlehem, and relaying the message that was given to them by the angels. Why not have some strange old guy come up to you (laughs) and hold your child and then just break out in praise at the temple? I mean, this is exactly what happens. There was no sign given to Simeon as to who this child would be, just like The shepherds were given a sign that the child would be in a manger. He wasn't told what to look for in identifying who Jesus was. And contrary to some of those paintings out there, Jesus was not running around with a halo in his infancy all right, to identify him. But he was at the exact place at the exact time as directed by the Holy Spirit. God had sovereignly ordained that this meeting would occur. But when he meets Joseph and Mary, and he sees this newborn child, he realizes something, that the promises of God have indeed come true. Salvation has come. God's promises ring true. Everything that he knows of the Old Testament, everything that he's been taught, every prophecy made of the Messiah is coming true. And as a result, as he holds this baby, the Lord Jesus, he breaks forth, and heartfelt praise and adoration of God. Now, it's quite possible and and very likely that Joseph and Mary told Simeon everything that had happened to them already. Mary's account with the angel and her relative Elizabeth, Elizabeth and Zacharias' testimony that Mary would have known, uh, Joseph's visit by the angel in his dream in Matthew 1, the shepherd's visitation and the testimony of the multitude of angels. It would have been just an additional thrill for Simeon to hear all of these things. And so as he sees this child, he sweeps him up into his arms and his heart is just full of gratitude that he just can't help but break out into praise of the Lord. So in verse 29, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So very basically and very simply what Simeon is saying here is that now that he has seen God's salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, he can die in peace. And not one jot and not one tittle of God's word has failed. Now this section here is called the nunc dimittis, right? Which is the two first two words of the Latin translation of these words, which is simply, Now, Lord, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant. So just as we had the Benedictus, we had Mary's Magnificat, we had the Gloria in Excelsis Deo by the angels, we have this other outburst of praise because of the overwhelming gratitude towards God. And so we can imagine that as he held Jesus, that there was just, Tears of joy streaming down his face. We can imagine that he brought the child in close to his chest. And his heart must have been just racing with excitement as he saw and he touched the Savior. His mind must have been going a hundred miles an hour. And with such a sight and such an embrace, Simeon's content to die. He's seen it everything. It must have been simply exhilarating to put it lightly. But think about it for a moment. It had been 400 years since there was a prophet in Israel who spoke for God. And before all of the outbursts of this angelic activity with Zacharias and Mary and the shepherds, there hadn't been any angelic activity for 500 years. But here's this Simeon, this faithful man waiting and watching for this very day. So what can we learn about this man, Simeon? What can we apply to our own lives of what we know? Well, I got three things for you. First of all, Simeon had a right theology. Did he have a supernatural revelation by the Holy Spirit? You bet he did. But you and I, we have the Word of God. We know a little bit more than Simeon did. We have a lot more revelation than Simeon did. We know of Christ's burial and death. Resurrection. We know of the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We know of the establishment of the church and how the gospel went forth from there and how we're to go to every tongue, tribe, and nation to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We don't get our theology from Hollywood and we don't get our theology from a majority of the false teachers on radio and TV right now. We develop and we cultivate our theology from the word of God. And as a result of that high theology, Simeon is living in such a way that is pleasing to God, right? A right orthodoxy drives a right orthopraxy, right? A right set of beliefs, what you think drives a right practice of them. The higher your theology, the greater your doxology. What you think drives what you do. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you treasure God more supremely than any earthly thing? Are you living in such a way that you would be found righteous and devout like Simeon? Beyond these walls and this day, are you living and acting and thinking like a called-out, born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you're struggling. Are you in God's word? Do you know that your heavenly father loves you and he cares for you and he wants you to cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you? Secondly, Simeon had a right soteriology. Very simply, this is the study of the doctrine of salvation. Simeon understood that salvation was to be found in no, nothing else, and no one else, but in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he could look at Jesus and say that he saw with his eyes he has seen God's salvation, solus Christus, Christ alone. Not what you do, not your works, but you're trusting in the finished work of God of Christ. Jesus Christ alone is your salvation. And then lastly, Simeon had a right eschatology, right? A study or a knowledge of the in things. He was looking for the consolation of Israel based upon what he had been taught of the scriptures. And as he understood God's progressive revelation of mankind, he knew that he was to be looking for a savior, a messiah. So is your walk with Christ one that you would not be ashamed if he were to be instantly standing beside you? See, Jesus Christ is coming again. 1 John 2.28 says, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Are you eagerly Awaiting for the return of Christ. It's imminent at any day, at any hour, just like a thief in the night, Jesus told us. Luke twelve thirty-five through 38, Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he knocks. Blessed are those slaves from whom the master will, be, will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or in the, even in the third watch and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. That's you and I. Being on alert doesn't mean a life of passivity. It doesn't mean that we're idly waiting for Christ's return. But what it means is that you are a good soldier, diligently using your God-given gifts in the service for Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Father of grace, we just pray that you would help us not to grow complacent with this world but that we would eagerly long for heaven, not because of the relief of our own afflictions, but because you are there. Help us to understand and live in such a way, knowing that this world is not our home and that we are here on a temporary basis. Help us to have a love for our fellow countrymen and for those of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Help us to be motivated to proclaim the gospel out of a deep, heartfelt love for you and those around us. Lord, help us to know you more. Increase in our grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can live obedient lives for you. We just pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.